Welcome to another episode of your Wild and Exposed podcast. Before we begin today's show, we have an exciting announcement from our sponsor, Precision Camera in Austin, Texas, the largest camera store between New York and L.A. Precision Camera is offering Wild and Exposed listeners a free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images with free shipping as well within the United States. To get this, go to our website at wildandexposed.com. On our homepage, go to the menu at the top right and go to our sponsors page. There, you'll find a quick link to Precision Camera. And once you're on their page, go to the option for a virtual consultation with one of their friendly and knowledgeable staff. They'll be more than happy to discuss and answer any questions that you might have for gear that you're interested in. At the conclusion of your visit, they'll give you a coupon code that will give you access to order this free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images. By supporting Precision Camera, you're also supporting your favorite podcast, Wild and Exposed. Now, on with today's show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. All right, welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got the full crew with you tonight for the first time in I don't even remember how long. Uh, we've had people out shooting everywhere. And we're going to catch up on some of that. First of all, how's everybody doing? It's been a long time. I feel like I'm missing my family sometimes. I think we've all been on and off at different times. So we've all had a chance to talk back and forth, but mm -hmm. never on a podcast. So it'll be cool to catch up and see what, what's going on. I think uh, the mostly what I've been doing, we covered in last week's podcast. But I know we got Jason, you were out doing some lizard stuff, which we haven't talked about. Ron, you've been doing that big time uh, project that you can't talk about the specifics on, but you can definitely talk about some of the definitely equipment you were able to use. Talk about some of the fun stuff, yeah. And Mark's been wrestling with computers. Mm -hmm. That's my least favorite thing computer. in the world on the planet. Right? I am such a polite guy to my computers. <laughs> really? Lately? Yeah. But anyway, I've been booking flights. I'm getting ready. I'm starting to get a good itch to get out into the wilderness. Some new gear. Going to get some new gear. I've been talking about it for a long time, but I just every day been Googling everything about all these cameras and where to go. But you guys, have, I mean, this is, this is not a podcast that Mark needs to talk a lot because it's been quiet here. It hasn't been fun. It's been a lot of computer time yet, but it's, I, I, and it's ramping up for me and, and down the road, there'll be lots to talk about. I don't want to talk about what I might be getting until I purchase it because we've been there too many times already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super curious to find out what you're going to do. So get on with it, please. Right. Me too. <laughs> yes. Hey, Jason, I know you uh, ordered the 604. Did they give you any indication when that's going to be out or is that something where you're on a list or what, how's that working? Yeah, so right now I'm on a list. I actually just texted Mike and 
asked him if he had any idea of any updates on expected delivery dates, but um, uh, sounds like potentially I could have it before my trip to Alaska. I'm hoping that's the case. Uh, so sometime in July is what we're hearing. So if I hear anything on that, I'll give an update. But right now it's still up in the air. There's no uh, firm dates that I'm aware of. So. And you got the 70 to 200 RF, right? Yeah, I have it. It's a great little lens. I'm excited. To, it's <laughs> it's a cute little thing. <laughs> <laughs> Super light. Uh, yeah. Very light, compact, and sharp. Yeah, it's it'll be a good one to have for what we're doing up there for sure. So, so Ron, you got a chance to play with the Komodo, right, on this last shoot. Is it an RF mount? I haven't got the whole layout on it that. Is. Does that mean it it's is. an actual RF mount and you can use all these RF lenses? Yep. It's an RF mount, so you can use the RF lenses, but you can also use the RF to EF adapter that has the drop-in uh, neutral density, so it makes it a lot nicer in the field. You've got a smaller form factor. You don't have the wind catching your mat box or whatever um, if you have to use neutral density on the front. So there's definitely some advantages to it. Uh, there's some disadvantages, too. Obviously, for a wildlife guy, there's no eyepiece, um, so you have to use an external screen or an external monitor and then, you know, have your focus peaking on the external monitor. The the tough part with what we were doing is there was, you know, the sun was really bright. There was several days where it was over 100 degrees or right around 100 degrees, no clouds, no nothing. So when we were trying to utilize that external monitor, a lot of times the glare, even if even if it was on the other side of the screen, just the brightness of the day and you know, if I was looking into the into the sun or toward the sun, I couldn't see the screen at all. So we tried to fashion a couple sunshades to help out with that external monitor. But that just gives you one more thing that can overheat as well um, on those hot, especially those hot days. But the, the Komodo's got, it's a fantastic image. Um, it's got a shorter pre-roll than the, uh, or pre-record than like the helium that you shoot, I think, or the helium or the monstro, it's only got a few seconds, four seconds on the pre-record. So that was a little bit of a disadvantage too, but we still managed to get some really good shots that, you know, I just had to get to the button a little bit quicker um, to get that rolling. And you can control it from your phone. I've seen Mike do this so many times in the field, and now I'm incredibly envious because you can change your ISO, you can change your aperture, you can change your uh, shutter speed. So you automatically set it for 180 degree shutter. We've talked about that a lot on the show, but you know, if you're recording at 30 frames a second, you want to have the shutter set to 160th or as close as you can get. Um, so that's the 180 degree shutters, double the frame rate. If you're at 100, it goes to 1 200th of a second automatically. And that's just one less thing you have to worry about. And then you can just, you know, you can just work with your aperture and uh, and your ISO. So to let's describe those two things. So for, there's bound to be people in the audience that don't know what pre-record is. Can you just explain what that was or what it actually pre -record does? Pre-record just, yeah. It's a little piece of magic <laughs> that... I've said that to these guys a few times already. I don't know how I've lived this long without it. And I don't video on wildlife. You cannot keep your 
eye on the viewfinder all the time. So when something interesting happens, it's nice to be able to hit record and then have that four to, I think on Mike's camera, what you can get up to 30 seconds, right? Right. So you've got that pre-roll where your camera is recording those frames, but it'll only record, let's say 90 frames on the, on the Komodo, it'd record 90 frames ahead. So we had about four seconds if we're filming at 25. Um, so you've got four seconds to get to that record button. And then if you, as long as you hit it, everything in those four seconds before is recorded. And there was a couple of times we still got lucky because it's not, you know, four seconds isn't a ton of time, but it is definitely better than seeing a behavior happen. And then, you know, not being, you know, if we're capturing stills, you see that behavior happen, it's too late to catch it, right? So having that pre-record is uh, is definitely an advantage, especially with video. On the last assignment I was on, oh, go ahead, Mark. So I was just going to say for clarification for our audience, too, these are the red cinema cameras. Yes, yeah. Right, they're based out of California, and the different models have been mentioned, mm -hmm. the Komodo and mm -hmm. the... So the Komodo is the newest and it's got the RF mount and the, the biggest advantage of the Komodo. And I think where red is headed with their other sensors is that it's got a global shutter, which means, you know, our, our shutters or our sensors, sorry, on our cameras, they record line by line. Uh, the global records the whole sensor at the same time. So you don't get that flicker if you're moving back and forth or panning real fast. Um, if you switch your frame rates, you don't you don't have as much flicker. It, it, it's a big deal, especially for video, I think. Um, but the the global shutter was uh, the biggest advantage on the Komodo. It records a 6K, so it's a little bit less than Mike's camera, and it's kind of an entry level. And I think. That being said, the entry level part of it, it's not that the image is entry level because you're still getting the red raw um, image, but you can't put the eyepiece on. And there's just a lot of adaptability that that camera doesn't have yet. I think they're going to come out with those components, but it doesn't have yet. And the red cameras go in, in a range from on the high end, 50,000 bucks all the way down to this Komodo, which is, I think, 6,000 bucks or something like yeah. that. It's about the same as the uh, Canon C70. And that's what I've been kind of wrestling with because the, the other portion of my job, so by the time this comes out, I will be a full-time videographer slash photographer. And the other part of my job is, yeah, I know, finally, huh? It's awesome. Having the built-in neutral density, which I think people are kind of hoping that red will move toward because Canon's done it in their entire cinema line, including the C70, which is a lot smaller camera. And having that, so you just push a button and you're increasing or decreasing your neutral density so you can, and the neutral density, Mike's talked about it quite a bit, um, talking about it being like sunglasses for your camera. So when things get really bright, you just increase the neutral density and it decreases the stops of light that are being allowed to hit the sensor. So you can maintain, you know, the same exposure uh, because you can't change your frame rate and you don't want to have to, in, you know, stop down your aperture. So you end up 
losing light and having a deeper depth of field. You want to maintain that shallower, nicer look of the shallower depth of field. Uh, so neutral density is a way to do that without being able to or having to go to F22 to cut the light. And then the other thing I think we needed to explain was the NTSC and the PAL. So the PAL is 25 a, a base rate for the time, and then NTSC is 24. So it's the difference between Europe and the U.S. So if you hear that, and most cameras can do it, both, you just have to set it. And if you're working on a project like Ron was for the BBC, and they know their market is primarily Europe, they're going to ask you in their show notes or in all their notes that they're giving you for that particular project, the base rate is this. So they'll tell you. So if it's something that's going to run in the U.S., it'll be NTSC, and it could be 24 or 30. If it's in in uh, Europe, it would be 25. So that's just to clear up that discrepancy. But almost every camera that I know about nowadays does it. The R5s, you can go in there and set PAL. Yeah. First first day when we got there, that's what we did. Went through all cameras and and uh, worked with Tim Lehman, by the way, who's been a National Geographic photographer, now videographer for a long time. And uh, what a nice guy. We're going to have a conversation on later on with Tim and great story. Fantastic guy. And, and uh, it was a great opportunity to learn from somebody that's been involved with it for that long and just see the amount of organization that it takes to maintain a project like that. Because the, the biggest issue the whole week besides the heat was sleep. Um, the species that we were filming it's early mornings and late evenings, so if you don't if you don't keep your time organized and prioritize getting a nap in the middle of the day, it uh, it definitely gave me an appreciation for those that stay more organized than I during a shoot. <laughs> yeah, you know when I was out on all the shoots this past year, uh, you know shooting with Doug quite a bit, he is mm -hmm. adamant about getting a nap. If he yeah. doesn't have a nap in the middle of the day, he's cranky and, and it, you know, it just starts wearing on you. So the thing yeah. is, is it's yeah. so much fun doing what you're doing. It's, it's easy yeah. to keep your energy level up and it's so much fun and it's so rewarding when you actually get the shots that are, they're asking for. And so it keeps you going. It's not till towards the end of the project where you're like, whew. That's it, right? You finished the morning. Go ahead. And Mark. you're so excited about what happened in the morning. You got talking about it and there goes nap time. Yeah. Right. It's, yep. That's all these trips this time of year. It can amount to that. But. Well, and the, some of the stuff they wanted, it, you had to be like super creative uh, in how you're going to capture it, obviously. And, you know, we've had Doug on talking about, you know, he's making basically a, a gimbal to hang his, he made his boat for that very reason. He had to be creative in how he was going to stabilize on the water. And some of the stuff that they wanted was um, subterranean. We'll just say, you know, underground stuff and building uh, even just a case that's going to keep your camera safe underground was it was tough to do in the field with very limited tools and very limited options. This is a good vein of conversation, and, and I'm, I have not heard anything about what you've been up to other than just a few texts. So I'll keep this going. I wanted to mention that the. Uh, before we move too far along, that Jason's 600 he ordered when he said Mike, it's Mike at Precision Camera, oh, correct? Our yeah. sponsor, 
a great, great company, and we highly recommend them, clearly, because Jason's ordering his lens from them. And their their link is in our on our website and all over our, our our social media stuff as well. Yeah, good call. Yeah, I wish I was the Canon guy that was getting all the lenses shipped right directly to me for distribution. <laughs> I'd try them yeah, all out before so, I send them out. Mike, yeah, yeah. This, well, and speaking of global shutter, isn't the the Canon R three rumored to potentially have that? That'll be one of the that's new the rumor. things yep. coming out with that model. And yeah. I think that's okay. where everybody's headed. And I don't know if that might be one thing that's causing Nikon's delay, but I think that's where everybody's headed right now. Oh, Sony, the Sony, the A one has it right. Yeah, I think so. Yes. I've done no research on this R. What do they call it? R three. R three. So what is that? What is it? It's going to be at the Olympics. It's, there was one in the field a week ago. It's, it's a new camera. It's new Canon's new. So you've got the R six, the R five, the R three, and then rumored R one. And I actually read an article today. It's like let's just get the R one, right? I mean, so the R three is coming out, but they're saying it might be a faster version with a slightly smaller sensor. The, the speculation is thirty megapixels from the rumors that I've read online, and frame bursts. I think thirty sounded like thirty, yeah. Whereas the then the projected rumors of the R one have a much larger sensor sensor and, and maybe not that kind of frame rate. I, I think Canon has two models that kind of play together on the on the pro end like that right now. The the Mark. 1DX Mark III. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's... So is that what the R3 is replacing? Is that version of the camera? It's not replacing, it was, like, the R5. It was supposed to be at that level, yeah. So it's a bigger housing. It's it's um, It should have... And it's one of the things that's, you know, kind of stopped me research, when I'm researching the R5 was the battery life of, you know, as low as three, well, 320 pictures. On a battery, I don't know if you guys have experienced. That. I haven't. It depends been much on, I guess, how you have it set up for me. Much yeah. better. Okay, that's a relief because I, I was going to. Well, get, if I go to Canon, um, <laughs> get get the added grip to have the two batteries. But the R three has the same batteries as the Mark, the One DX Mark three. Whatever you just said. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, a stronger or longer battery life. So it's a bigger unit, and but the thing is, it's global shutter, right? And also the sensor, this uh, lit from. I, I need to read this stuff. It's, it's, it hasn't been what I've been working on today, but is it's a, is it? A, I, yeah, it's not a double sensor, is it? What's the scoop on that? Oh, the yeah, the dual. And what's that mean? What's dual sensor mean? Hey, it's new to me, man. Ron usually knows all this stuff right off the top. Yeah, the, let's figure it out. I've watched a couple of videos on the dual sensor technology, but. Honestly, right now I can't. Dual pixel CMOS back. This is this is something else new. Back illuminated stacked CMOS CMOS sensor. So we'll have the answer next time on Wild and Exposed. So it's been interesting because you know Sony's got the A1, which has all the super sexy stats of what cameras can be for 2021. Now, Jason. You've had Sony, and so have you, Mike. What was it? Was it the glass that, like, why wouldn't you stick with the A1? Everything about that looks really good spec-wise. And they've got lenses, but is the, I, I mean, without using it myself, does the glass compare to Nikon and Canon? 
Would you say? Oh, I would say, yeah. I don't think there's, I don't think you could tell the part, tell them apart. Is it just that more people are used to the branding of Canon and Nikon? Do you think that's, I mean, Sony is very popular and right, rightfully so, but for somebody who's looking to potentially switch because Nikon, if I could knock on the door right now, Nikon, hello, hello, I heard Nikon, I heard there was a, a Z9, what is that? You know, when is that? At least give us some teasers for people who have been Nikon shooters forever as to what's happening. Because the other brands are dropping them. These great models coming out one after another and raising the bar and raising the bar. And you can't just wait for like three generations and say, here it is. Because it's like, really, did you get it right? I hope so. But come on. It's so... It's one of those things, COVID, we talked about it. COVID delayed this. It's been great in that sense. There's been no rush because I haven't been traveling on big assignments myself that I needed it, but that's coming. It's time. It's been long enough. And I am want to be that hybrid shooter. I want to be able to do video. That's another conversation. That's on That's on my on my wish list too. But, um, but for stills, to have a camera that has that level of stabilization that these mirrorless cameras have with some of the lenses, to be able to switch from stills to do video short segments in the field, I need to do that this year. So I'm not waiting for Nikon if it's 2022. I can't. I, I lose the video opportunity. So do you hear the door? Do you hear the door? Well, then at this point, you know it's... It's definitely 2022. I mean, they don't even have specs announced yet, so there's no doubt it's going to be at least 2022. Well, I think the reason that I switched from Sony to Canon, I never left Canon, but I got a Sony just because, you know, I tend to follow the buzz, right? But then you get these projects that require certain things, and it's like, well, if this project will, if I can do it better with the Sony, I'll just get a Sony and do that. And that's what I've always done. But I think the reason I switched to or bought the R5 initially was because of the 8K video, right? So everybody's like, well, if you can future-proof your stuff, you might as well. So if you can shoot an AK, then do it. Now, is it the best end-all, be-all? Probably not. It overheats. You can have all kinds of problems. But you do get moments of brilliance. If you shoot the R5 with a one-terabyte card at 8K, you get 44 minutes video. So that's not a lot. But then you're entering the red territory, right? So you just have huge files, and that's just the name of the game. But it gave me a chance to future-proof it. Why did you switch, Jason? You know, for me, I was, you know, I go back to my, I was having some issues with the color schemes. Um, I've learned quite a bit since then. And now with the A1 out, I mean, that camera is incredible. And I, you know, I was thinking about this, Mark, when we were talking last week, but I really believe it's the Ford Chevy debate. I mean, <laughs> at this point, especially with Sony, I'm not so sure about Nikon, to be honest. But with Sony and Canon, I just don't think you can go wrong. I think you just got to pick one and go with it. And they're just going to keep leapfrogging each other, I believe. And hopefully Nikon will catch up. But I'm not so sure they will at this point. You know, it's kind of concerning to me, too, obviously. But, I mean, if I if I had, if the A1 had come out before I had made the switch to Canon, I would have had a harder time making a decision. But I've made my decision at this point. So I agree 100%. I'm sorry. I, what I'm thinking about, and I, I, I feel a little behind the time because you guys, R5's been out for so long, but 
For a lot of my interior trips, if I'm in a canoe or something, the R5 on that 1 to 500 is such a compact unit that I can just have in a, in a little chest bag. I'm paddling. It's not a, it's not interrupting my backpack. And if we come up on a moose or a loon, it's easy access. Everything's right there. That setup, you know, and then a 600 because primes are okay, according to Jason, right? And, and then when the R1 comes out, that's got to be, you know, if the R3 is changing certain elements the r1 would has to be even better in, in other respects so that's what i'm mapping out as far as mirrorless cameras for this kind of application because you can't just have a, a red to me at this point because there's so many other media outlets that we access and, and market to so to have a, a very versatile compact mirrorless setup that we can do stills and video in addition to a, a more serious anchored recording rig that's kind of where my head's at going as a professional right now for the market of stills and video given the importance uh, emerging not it's been around forever but the more and more relevant market of video yeah and i think one of the things with the r3 is they're not going to have 8k video in it so i think the i think the r1 probably will again um you'll have down sampled 4k um in the R3, but the sensor's not quite big enough to have 8K. So I think that may be something that they're saving again for the uh, the R1, like you talked about earlier, Mark. And then that comment that you just made about autofocus. So I did not have good luck with it uh, in the Moose Woods last fall. Didn't have great luck with it with bears. Uh, so I thought I would try on the species that we were just filming. There wasn't very much in the way at all. They're, they're um, just kind of out in the wide open. And so I thought it would be a good opportunity to try to try to uh, test that out again. In addition to that, there's very high contrast between the eye and, and the fur. So I thought, again, you know, having that eye focus that, that it would work a, a lot better. But man, you just cannot film or, or video with autofocus. It jumps all the time. And Mike's commented about it before that, you know, you can't risk being in on the best behavior that's ever been in front of you. And then all of a sudden having that sensor grab something else and then jump back because you just that whole clip is is lost now. So manual focus is still a must. And I don't think, you know, the Komodo, the red Komodo has autofocus as well. But I don't think you can trust it still. So even in the open? Even in, even in the wide open, it would jump to a sagebrush or, yeah. Okay, so it went behind the sagebrush, it would grab mm -hmm. it. But if it, as long as there is nothing between the lens and the subject, it should theoretically work, yeah. right? Well, I think it's going to work, but I think you also need to play with it. I mean, I think you need to go. We talk all the time, go out in your backyard and try it out. So I think you need to go out because there's all kinds of settings. You can have it lag. You can have it, you know, you can tell it the amount of sensitivity you want and depend on your style of shooting should depend on how you set up that camera. But it's not an easy task. It's a lot of trial and error and figuring it mm -hmm. out and figuring out the style. And I could even see changing it for every species too. So if you're shooting moose that are in a forest, that's going to be different than shooting a, 
a mountain lion out on the, or not, that's a bad example, a coyote on the prairie. You know, it's just two different things. And, and, or a polar bear up in the, you know, wide open white uh, ice fields or something. So I don't know. I, I'm, what Ron said earlier, I don't screw, I plenty of chances to screw it up with manual focus because you just can be off. But if I'm on manual focus, I just know I'm confident going to get what's going on and things in my way are not going to get in my way because I can maintain that focus plane that I want to be on for whatever I'm shooting at the moment. And with wildlife, Mm -hmm. it's not like it's super, super fast. I mean, yeah, maybe birds flying, but other stuff, um, most wildlife is not that fast. Cheetahs, maybe, you know. I'm going to disagree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of it, too, is for along that line is they don't expect everything to be perfect. And there are uses for something that's out of focus. It can tell a different part of the story. There's uses for all this stuff. And then the other thing is, is if you're focusing on a certain focusing, that's pun intended, but... If you're working with a, a species, you're going to have to spend time to perfect it. I don't care what it is. If you're doing muskrats, I mean, to get that perfect shot, nine times out of ten, it's not going to happen with the first go, first hour of every shoot, right? You're going to spend a little bit of time perfecting it. I think we've all had that. You know, you go out and you shoot an elk. You come back and you look at it and you're like, oh, I can make this so much better if I just would have done this, this, and this. So the next time you go out and you do that. So it's the same thing with the video stuff is I I wouldn't get too locked in on just letting the camera do everything for you. There's still that art that you want to be able to control stuff and and just know that it's going to take a little time to perfect it. And that's probably the biggest thing that I learned is that storytelling piece because it's so different with, you know, like. Just for instance, telling the telling the story of Mark and and the moose and the grand color or caribou and the grand color up in the tundra or Jason and the you know the elk images and just utilizing the light, you can tell those some of those stories with a single frame, but telling it with video, there's just so many different components. And I, you know, you always talk about it, Mike, but until you get to look at a, a script and a shot list and and see what all pieces they want. And then not only do you need all those pieces, but you need them in different ways. You need them wide, medium range and, and tight for everything. And then being being able to just get the creative stuff that's kind of going to be the, you know, just the, the cream on the coffee. Yeah, Sunday. whatever. The cream on the something. <laughs> But just get the creative stuff, and I think that totally sets it apart. And that's what those big networks—that's what they want. They want to have all their stuff set apart. So it was fun to learn that, and to see somebody work at it as hard as Tim did. He was obviously the primary shooter. I was basically a naturalist slash assistant. Um, but I tell you, the cameras that I worked with the most were GoPros, and that was a blast. I. You can be so creative with the GoPros and we've all done it, you know, at different points in time. Jason's got some, Jason and his son Hunter got that tremendous elk uh, footage. Mark's got that, the caribou footage with the shadows. And, you know, Mike obviously has been working with the the moose up in Alaska and messing around with them, but they are a great tool and they're pretty cheap to throw in the bag. 
They're pretty cheap to throw around and not worry about it either. If you're going to lose a camera, I'd rather lose a GoPro than an R5. Right. I'm still not, I'm still not as rich as you though. So I've got to worry about it a little bit. <laughs> no, I worry about it. Trust me. But I'm also like, eh, I'll, I'll give this a go. Yeah. They're pretty durable. Yeah. Speaking of GoPros, I've been using the Osmo Action, but I want to pick up, I want to have at least three units for field work this year. Any rumors that you guys have heard of a new model coming out? Usually they pop out in September, right? But nine. It's out. Go, no, the nine's out. Oh. I've got a couple of our, uh, the GoPro nines and we used them on the drive up. And, you know, the, the I think they call it hyper smooth or hyper. Hyper smooth. Yep. That's amazing stuff. I mean, it just. I mean, you can sit there and watch that camera shake, and then you look at the footage, and it's pretty steady. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's per pretty steady. It's watchable, and you're like, holy crap, how does that work? How's that How's that technology working? And then it also has, they call it something, I don't remember what it was, but, um, you know, on the drive up, we're like, oh, man, you come around the corner, and there's a moose. Well, we're not going to get that unless we had pre-record, right? Or it actually has a pre-record in there. What we found out, though, was... It chews through the battery super fast, and the camera gets super hot. So, so hot that you couldn't touch the bat. I mean, you could touch it, but you wouldn't want to hold on to that battery because it's just constantly recording those frames to keep up. So, but that was going to be our chance to try to get. And we just were going through so many batteries, we could do, quit doing it. So we didn't get a lot of wildlife on the road footage, but it does have that capability, I guess is my point. You got some cool stuff, though. I just wanted to tie into the YouTube. Check out the YouTube playlist from Colorado to Alaska. The, there's five videos, and the last one is 30 minutes long. Mike introduces it with Ray in the van, and then he takes you on an awesome tour. Set the music through the Rockies all the way to Alaska. It's worth watching. Phenomenal. For anybody who's been housebound this year and just chomping at the bit to get out this is the video to get you going so watch that stuff and yeah i'm, I'm glad to hear about the gopro i mean the, these little units that they're that stable the osmo action i mean i was hoping they put them on sale last may in in 2020 i was hoping they were coming out with an, something new to tweak it but i'm so happy with that I mean, I've recorded a bunch of vlogs that will eventually get up on the YouTube, but just walking in the, on the tundra with the caribou, holding it in my hand, it's, it's watchable footage. So, mm -hmm. but the thing is with the GoPro nine, I'm thinking, well, I'll, I'll research this, but I'll have to get, I think I'll switch potentially to those because it's hard working two different systems, right? Oh, I was just going to say the GoPro eight outperformed the nine, um, in the conditions that we had it in. And it was a lot of dirt and dust and, uh, battery life though that and I cannot say without I can't say unequivocally that it wasn't because I got dust inside because we were using external batteries uh, so you had to keep the the battery door open and then connected it to a brick we talked about doing it you know on the podcast a while ago just to extend the battery life because you can use a 512 gigabyte card you can shoot all day you know basically um, but the battery life is what the limiting factor is, but the eight lasted longer on those bricks than, than the nine did. And the nine overheated a lot quicker than the eight. So, you know, that's something to think about too. You might want one of each. They're very similar. There's a couple little differences in the menu system. Um, 
but they're very similar. And the the only problem, the biggest problem with the eight is you can't replace the lens. The nine, you they switch that back, so now you can again. Uh, if you were to scratch your lens or something, you're not totally out of luck. They sell a little kit at Costco here in the U.S. where you can go buy the nine. Comes with a little handle and a couple of batteries, and yeah. I think it's three eighty nine or something. So it's not no three forty nine. Yeah, it's cheap. Yeah, it's cheap. I mean, it's not it's money, but. But it's it's worth having it. So quickly, Ron, after shooting both recently, would you say there's any difference in the footage that you're seeing between the eight and the nine? The hyper smooth is is pretty slick. We so one of the things that they wanted was like a bird's eye view. Um, so we put instead of using a drone because we didn't want to use a drone around the the subjects, we put it on the end of like a painter's pole. And then just, you know, had it lashed to a tripod, to a video tripod. So it was very stable. But the end of that pole was bouncing, you know, obviously, because you get you get out to the end or extend it 12, 14 feet. Obviously, there's some flex there. And that hyper smooth, if you just, you know, made a nice rotation or nice pan, that hyper smooth worked great in uh, in taking some of that bounce out. The eight showed it, you know, quite a lot more. Uh, Footage-wise, though, image quality-wise, they're very similar. I would say the the nine has also has a, a lot wider view, but it tends to distort the horizon. So you, you can use it, but you're not going to be able to use it for every shot, if that makes sense. So, what were you going to say, Jason? Yeah. So just before we get too far away from the whole Sony Canon thing, I just had a thought. And it's, I think it's worth sharing with the listeners as well. But, Mark, one thing to think about when making your decision, um, a good friend of mine, Kelly Elmer, he has he went to Sony. And his reasoning was because they won, obviously. Uh, but Sony has been around, obviously, for a long time with mirrorless. Um, they're kind of the leader in that technology. And uh, the lens selection that Sony has is, you know, pretty pretty dramatic there's a ton of lenses to choose from you know with the new canon rf mount it's exciting because those some of those new lenses are brand new technology and the things that they're accomplishing with those new lenses and that new mount is pretty impressive but the lens selection is very small right now so you know how fast can they get to market with those lenses and some of that stuff is the question with the canon stuff but the fact that they came out with the r3 and were very close with the tracking and some of the other features in the mirrors you know, shows that Canon's definitely serious about being in the game. And, and you know, they've they've definitely invested in their engineering side, which, of course, we've talked before, it doesn't seem like Nikon has. So, but just some food for thought when you're thinking about, you know, how which way you want to go. Well, to add on to that, though, too, I mean, if you're thinking about video, I think your Canon is your better bet because you can run what Ron talked about earlier with that adapter and has built in neutral density, essentially, if you're running an EF lens. So you can still use all the old lenses from Canon through the adapter, have your built in or your filter tray that has a variable neutral density ND on it, and you just dial it in. Whereas if you're using a RF camera body with an RF lens, then you're putting neutral density out on the front of the lens. So it's a little bit more cumbersome and not as easy to dial it in and not as clean too, because you got something in front of all that really high quality glass that you just spent a lot of money on. Whereas if you're using a Canon adapter that has the Canon filter tray in it, 
I think the lens quality or the filter quality is a better, better filter. So you're going to get a better image. Mm-hmm. It depends, though, because <laughs> <laughs> I like what you're saying, and, and you're you're 100 percent right. Of course, you are on this subject. But the RF has got greater stabilization for handheld video, right? I'm I'm envisioning walking with caribou, for instance, and getting a, a 20 second clip and having that. It's going to be hard to shoot handheld video with a hundred. Handheld video is hard. <laughs> no matter what, no out. matter what system you're using, no matter how you're doing it. And 100 millimeters is a lot. Mark, what you're thinking, what you're thinking, though, is like maybe brace, you know, brace up on a tree, get a clip of a a moose pit or a rut pit or whatever. Get a clip of a caribou walking by, not necessarily going to film a whole. Excuse me, a, a whole sequence with it. But, yeah, just having that capability of catching something as it's happening. Right, the short segments. But the thing is, mm-hmm. I'm always moving with the animals because they're not in one place. So I could be going – some of the caribou uh, areas I film, they have these little uh, paths through the forest. And a great kind of place if you know where they're going to set up a, a GoPro or something. But it's where I could switch from stills to video, whether it's bracing by a tree. But I was also hoping with this eight stops of stabilization that I could just, like with a GoPro, move with them and – create a short scene of, of movement along with the animal. Do you not think that will, that'll fly? I think you're going to have a lot of movement. I think you got to try it to see if you can perfect it. I can do with the GoPro, but the GoPro is too wide angle, right? So you're not getting an animal. Whereas if you have a bit of a zoom, if I'm at 400 millimeters on that zoom, it'd be too much shake. There's different levels of acceptability, right? I think it just depends on your audience that you're trying to, the audience you're trying to, capture i mean if you're going for just a quick instagram clip i think you know a certain amount of shake is totally just like yeah i get it that's fine it's cool if you're going for a youtube audience a certain amount of shake it's fine if you're going for a national geographic or bbc or discovery show none of that's gonna fly you're gonna have to be on a tripod no matter what well you've got the the heavier like ronin gimbal systems you can put on the shoulder mount right and that facilitates it but then you're I was just trying to think of a way that we could do that. Or in a canoe, for instance, and there's some motion. I don't have it in these situations. It's such a mobile day. I'm, I'm, I don't have a tripod set up. That's not part of this lightweight mirrorless plan. So that's where I was hoping that, and you're right, 100%. I mean, there are people on YouTube doing wildlife that are getting huge subscriberships, and the video is not top-notch, and movement doesn't matter. People are just liking to see what they're filming as far as the big animals or the behavior, the seasonality. It gets them out of their home. I, I appreciate that. But the ideal is when you, as a professional, and when you spend this much money on, the, on what you want to be the best gear, you want what you record or photograph to be applicable to any application, ideally. So we create YouTube vlogs, but I would also want to be building a library that these obviously short clips, but would be able to be implemented into. I think you need to fast forward 10 years. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good to know. So all this causes some pause because it's like, that was where I was hoping this stuff was at because they can do it with these with these little action cameras. Well, yeah, but you can do it with an R5 if all you're going to shoot is a 24. You'll get, you won't see the shake. But the minute you start magnifying that, that you're just magnifying the vibration is all that's happening. So you're just, 
you you could get it. You could do the exact same thing. But a hundred is is. I mean, you could do it. You definitely can do it. If you're if you had not a lot of coffee and it wasn't cold and you weren't shaking and freezing <laughs> your butt off, and you were chilled and you relaxed and you're just not breathing you know, heavy, going yeah, with not the flow, for miles. you could nail it. Yeah. But I don't think you're going to nail it consistently. <laughs> One thing I was going to say though is even if you look at some of the latest. Um, videos that the the productions that have come out on discovery you know when they're doing that kind of that you know they're probably on a shot over on a vehicle or something right and they're cruising along next to the critters those aren't perfectly still they're not they you know i mean there you can see the mo the mo the motion in those so yeah i don't know mark i think you gotta just get it and try it depends it. on what you have too right i mean for some of the scenarios oh, yeah. if you get in it's something really cool happening then there's more forgiveness right yeah but just yeah. get it. If you're in your canoe, it's part of the story. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's not going to expect to see any motion when you're in a canoe. But if you get in a canoe and you mount one of the handheld gimbals, like the Ronin S or, or Zinyun makes one or whatever, and you mount it solid to the canoe, that gimbal is going to do its job and it is going to give you rock solid footage. But then you're carrying more gear with you. You know, you're not down to that mobile system. I don't think there's a really solid way to get have everything you know you just got to pick and choose what that is what your kit is and just be willing to carry that kit so this could be <laughs> this could be the solution then just to conclude this subject i mean so many people are are getting these mirrorless setups so the mirror the r5 with the one to 500 if somebody practiced on the ronin that could give that mobility yeah for sure right but there's whole weight restrictions with that too. So you just need to figure out what what you're trying to accomplish. Oh. The seventy to the seventy to two hundred and one DX Mark II wouldn't work because it to to balance it you have to slide the camera back. And so your your limiting factor is the length of that arm. So the seventy to two hundred and like the R five, R six, the the gimbal arm cleared. And you know we're gonna have to we're gonna have to throw a visual of this in so people can see it. But the the gimbal arm did clear on the R5 and R6 without the battery grip. But the 1DX Mark II couldn't do it, and the Komodo it it didn't clear either with that long of a lens. So I think you could get away. But then you extend the you know you extend the 100 to 500 on the RF cameras, and then you're back to the point where you can't clear anymore. So they're in your balance is way off. Yeah. Every time you change it, you've got to rebalance. Now there is a micro adjust on that. Um, the new, the R2 uh, gimbal that you can, you can just dial it in pretty quick as long as you've got room to do it. But there's, there's definitely a lot more to that gimbal. And the, the really positive thing is, I mean, you're talking about making a lightweight system. They put carbon arms on that thing. And so it, it lightened it up a ton compared to like the Zion or, or even the older Ronins. Um, but man, that's a, it's a fun tool, but it definitely takes some time. Like Mike said, I think, you know, I think you'd have to you'd have to give yourself a solid month with it to be able to reliably, you know, like all of us. And I think the goal of everybody listening is to be able to just make that camera an extension of yourself. 
and to be able to make that you know the gimbal you add one more thing into the mix not only now do you have to make the camera an extension of yourself but you've got to make that gimbal just an extension of the camera so there is a you know throwing another element into it adds a, a much higher degree of difficulty and a higher degree of focus required to be able to to get the shots with the one to 500 not zoomed out be too heavy for that unit i mean i can look at the specs when i no it'll it handle, handle the weight yeah it's okay. just the balance and being able to maintain the balance so you could set it at 300 and maybe be okay yeah and i think if That's you the, the other thing is if you turned it upside down then mm. you don't you don't have as much clearance to worry about so if you made yourself a little frame attached that frame to your kayak yeah. hung it upside down I think you'd have a little bit more flexibility for your zoom range as well. Interesting. So, well, that could be the ticket then. It's good to have these talks because otherwise, you know, there's so many options and choices out there in the world of photography. It's just dizzy. I'm trying to think how much of the audience we've lost, but there's <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it's, it's so fun to mess with some of this stuff. And, and I didn't even, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did in the last two weeks, I would have never even thought of trying. And it's not that it's all that technically difficult, but I wouldn't have thought of, of trying some of this stuff. I mean, you look at the the GoPro set, setups that we were using, there's um, IR triggers that they make for the GoPros. And then also um, the IR GoPro itself so you use utilize a infrared light and you can get you know images underground but you would think in the with the updates in technology that some of these newer gopros were the easiest ones to reprogram but we we use hero threes for all of that so that's six generations ago because they were programmable you can go in and actually modify the, yeah, the software inside things. the camera yep. Yeah, so going backwards in technology is not always a bad thing either. Jason, are we are we going to get to hear about these colorful lizards? Do we have time? Because yeah, we have time. If we haven't lost everybody, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I don't know exactly where to start. I'll just uh, my wife and I made a trip down, um, spent some time down there in the Four Corners area. Um, had had a really good time chasing <laughs> lizards around again. Uh, I think I ended up photographing five different species, um, so that was fun. And the cool thing about this trip versus the last year's trip was that I, I had a lot more time to kind of think about how I wanted to approach it and uh, the kind of shots that I wanted to get. Uh, but the, the challenge yet again, I think the first day I was sending – I sent everybody a text at the end of the day, and I think I said I saw for sure 24 different collared lizards. And that was, I stopped counting when I was, was heading back on the road because I didn't know how many I was seeing again. Um, and I think I ended up seeing like 32 collared lizards, some of those probably repeats. So that was pretty impressive in my mind for one day. Um, but the interesting thing was, there's a large percentage of those that, you know, as soon as you stop the car, they don't stick around. 
Or as soon as you stop the car and then you go to open the door, they don't stick around. So it's it's finding the one that you can stop the car, open the door, get out, <laughs> and slowly approach that they they'll they'll sit still and and uh, give you the opportunity to get some shots. Um, some shots you can get from the car, but with those hot days, you know it's a little bit tough. As we all know shooting from a vehicle, it can be productive. You know, using a vehicle as a blind, like we've talked before. But the challenge can be with the, the heat from the ground and from the motor. Uh, getting images quickly from a car can be a, it can be a challenge with those issues. So um, the fun the fun part with these little lizards, though, I'll tell you something I learned is is just there. If you you know, like we've always talked, you watch an animal, you start to learn their body language, you start to learn their behaviors, you start to get cues on when they're getting nervous, things like that. And these lizards, they when they get nervous, they start kind of they'll they'll start they'll come to attention and they'll start kind of doing these push-ups and stuff, and then they'll start to twitch a little. And so as you're approaching, you're you're playing this game. And I my wife was asking me who I was talking to. I was talking to, to the lizard and myself, but you know like oh whoa whoa don't go stay there buddy you know and and start to approach and you'd see him twitch and then I'd stop and try to get him let him get comfortable and. But no, it was fun. We had a really good time, and we unfortunately we found I think three or four different ones that were super tolerant. I mean, one, I mean, he ran right over my foot. So it was it was we had a really good time with this one. He was a really I don't know I don't know what constitutes an older lizard or a more or a, a bigger lizard or a more colorful lizard. To be quite honest, I don't know a, a lot about it still. But he was a very colorful and seemed like he was probably an older lizard. Um, Is that the one that I'm, had all the dark? Yeah, the dark neck and man, the images you got of yeah. that thing—that was beautiful. Yeah, he let me take a lot of photos of him, so that was fun. I mean, I got all kinds of different looks at him, and and that was, the, and I think I spent probably two hours with just that one lizard, and I was laying on the ground, I was you know peeking around rocks and doing all kinds of fun stuff with him. But um, you know, I was thinking about it, and something we might want to do. And I need to do some digging. We maybe somebody on here knows, but I think it'd be fun to have a you know a herper or, or a you know somebody that's really into the 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 reptile photography on the show and talk about kind of the ethics about it and some of those kind of things too. Because I know there's a lot to that, and I've learned through doing a little bit of research, um, looking for other spots to do this, that you know it's it is a concern. People are. There's a lot of folks that understand where these lizards live that don't want to share a lot of information because of the concerns with people catching them and um, selling them as pets and things like that. There's a bunch of different issues that go along with this, which, as you know, we all know, tends to be the case. So, but uh, but yeah, overall had a great trip. One of my favorite images is probably not even really that great of an image to be honest, but uh, it's probably my proudest image is because. Last year, I saw a leopard lizard. Mike had told me about these leopard lizards, and I, I did see a leopard lizard again. I'm pretty sure it was the same one. I saw it a couple times, but I finally got a shot of one. The last last year, it was it was just wasn't happening, and this year it wasn't happening either. But it was right before we actually left, and I finally found one. It stood stayed still long enough for me to to get a couple shots, and they were a long ways away. They were cropped pretty tight, but I was still pretty happy with it and proud of those shots. So, but it just it just lights the fire. I'm just excited to go try it again, and now I want to do a lot more different species, you know. And it's crazy how this 
photography thing just keeps continues to grow and mm-hmm. you know we've said it before there's so many species and so many different types of animals to photograph out there that you literally could do this for an entire lifetime and never even scratch the surface on the different species and that, that you could spend time on so you said there was lots of bugs was it bad or were they just like oh yeah relentless <laughs> yeah i didn't touch on that really did i um so yeah my wife was a little upset about that it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was more brutal than last year for sure. Uh, matter of fact, I was laying on the ground with that one lizard, and every time I'd go to take a photo, I'd get a little bite on the ear, or a little bite on the arm. And the thing with these little biting gnats is they 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 kind of they're just annoying. They don't really hurt. I mean they they sting a little when they bite you, but it's not that. It's the after effects. And you know later the next that night or the next day. I mean, my wife was tore up. She had bites all over her. And I don't know, they just liked her better. I mean, I had my share of bites, but nothing like she did. And she was staying in the car a lot, so they were just attacking her in the car even. But, I mean, me laying on the ground doing all my things, I had a few bites, but... Um, yeah, there. It's part of the. It's part of the experience, right? I think you need to treat it like you're going into some like nuclear zone where you just tape up your your sleeves, you tape up your pant legs, you wear. The only thing that's showing is your eyes, and you'll still get bit, but not as. I mean, this is just relentless. It's so annoying. You just get so frustrating. And if you are someone that they like, like. It's yep. I, you just can't focus on. I mean, when you and I did it last year, it wasn't so bad. And then I went back out a couple of days later, and it was. I didn't have my pant legs tied up, and I was wearing shorty socks, so I had some of my ankle. You know, you lay on the ground, and your pants just raise up a little bit, and just thousands of bites just all over my legs, just from being you know. But you're so focused on getting a cool picture that you're kind of zoning out, but. Yeah. The trick to that is just go a week earlier, too, because it is a very timed thing when those gnats come out. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And the, and you're right. It, the hard part is you want to wear long sleeves and you want to wear a hat with a, you know, the what do you call those, Mike? The the uh, net gaiters, the really thin, like, net gaiters, I guess. But um, that helped a ton, but they still find their way in. And when they're real bad, boy, they just... Yeah, I'm. <laughs> if you haven't experienced biting gnats, you know. If you have, you know what we're talking about. If you haven't, it's hard to understand until you've experienced it. <laughs> we'll put up some of those images in the show notes, though. But the leopard lizard that Jason's talking about—I mean, it's just a fierce. I mean, when I've seen leopard lizards, they're oftentimes eating another lizard. They're just like, you know, if you had to compare them to a charismatic megafauna, they'd be the grizzly bear of the of the lizard world because they just eat whatever and they're big. Some of them, I don't know how big is the one that you actually filmed was, but they can get huge. Yeah. This guy was probably, he was pretty good sized lizard. His body was probably 10 to 12 inches minus his tail, something like that. He was a pretty good sized lizard and you could definitely tell the stark difference in the size. And I was hoping to get that epic shot that Mike talked about with the, you know, the leopard lizard eating the collared lizard or something like that. That would have been pretty cool. But, I, again, it's one of those things where if you want those kind of shots, right, you've just got to put the time in and be out there. And, you know, to get something like that, you're not just going to go in the field. And 99.9% of the time, you're not just going to go out in the field and, and get a shot like that. It, sometimes you get lucky, but those are the kind of shots you get when you spend 
you know, weeks in the field year after year with those kind of critters. And you got to wonder how much they travel. I mean, if you find one in a location, can you come back the next day and figure, ah, he's probably not going to move more than 50 yards in a, in a circumference? Or since they are the predator that they are, will they just go a mile in search of food and then you're never going to find them in the same spot? I don't even know any of that. But that would be, that would be what would be required to, to tell that story in whole. Well, and, and you're right, Mike. And the other thing that was interesting, I was going to, I actually didn't tell you this, I'm glad you brought it up because it's part of the, the learning curve of this type of a um, photography. But I did notice that I did tend to see the leopard lizards in the same area as I did last year. Um, you know, it was a pretty big area, obviously, but the same general area. And the area that we were photographed from last year that was super hot, that we had really good lizards that were playing, I think I saw maybe one lizard in that entire area. Didn't see hardly anything in there. So as far as, yeah, as far as the collared lizards, it didn't seem, I mean, they were in the same general area, but they were in much different areas than we were seeing them last year. So that, I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, hmm. but adding to the mental database. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to a guy yesterday, actually the guy that showed me the grieb nest that I'm going to go photograph after the podcast. He was talking about photographing prairie rattlesnakes in Colorado. And, you know, they don't, <laughs> they don't they'll bite something and then they're back off right and then from that point forward they'll just let the animal die because of the venom and then the snake will move in and get it just because they don't have to worry about being hurt themselves by whatever animal they just they just bit but there has to be some pheromone or something that's given off in the venom or the animal that got struck by the venom for the snake to know which way to go to go find that animal once it's died right and he, he was talking about witnessing that. And I wanted to dig in deeper, and we didn't. But he might be a good person to have on the podcast and talk about that sort of thing because it's just all this behavior with all these animals that I don't think anybody really puts it. There's people that love herps. You know, there's just the people that love lizards and snakes, and they have them as pets and that sort of thing. But for the most part, that's a pretty small part of the population. But they're really interesting, and there's so many cool things to learn about them. And, and as you can see in the photographs you took, I mean, they're so colorful, and you can make a really cool image out of them. And I, you, you got one actually in uh, the top of a sagebrush uh, plant too, yes. didn't you? Just not on a rock. It was actually – and I think they do that for – uh, displaying for trying to find a mate. I think that's the males that'll go up in there and they'll they'll change their colors because they can change their color on a dime. As far as uh, we, I was and I'm, we probably talked about this on a podcast one, once before, but I was watching two a male and a female and they actually were mating because that's the time of year when we're going is that's when they're the most colorful. But when they actually started mating, the color from both their bodies just left. They went drab as just a just like a regular brown shopping bag, you know, and they go from all that real vibrant color to nothing. I'm wondering if that's something like they were on top of a rock. So if they're in, in the act of mating, they're not paying attention to anything else. Is that a, a response to, you know, a hawk or a, a bird or something coming in? And if they lose all that color, they're not readily as identifiable from the air. And it was pretty short lived. And then when they when they were done and they separated, the color came back. So I mean, there's just so much to that make them so interesting, and so many things to kind of discover that it would be fun to get a person on to talk about it. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, it's funny you said that too, because I'm sorry, we could keep going on. I had, I had a lot of fun, but one of the things that was really cool is the one legend I spent the two hours with, I mean, I spent enough time with him just waiting for him to change poses and stuff that there was points where I was watching him um, actually catch um, catch bugs. So he started to hunt a little bit too, and he kept his color, which was interesting. But it was interesting. There was a there were some ravens flying around, and he was paying attention to those ravens. I mean, it, you know, obviously he should be right because obviously they're prey for them. But um, but it was really interesting to watch him turn his head and look up to the sky and pay attention to what this raven was doing, as well as he's trying to you know catch bugs and stuff too. So yeah, I mean, when you just sit down and spend time with animals. It's just amazing the stuff you see and the behaviors you get to witness and stuff. And it's simple as a collared lizard, you know, and co- you know, down there in <laughs> Colorado, it's pretty fun. So, well, we'll put a lot of the pictures up in the show notes because I think you'll all want to go. I mean, if you follow Jason's feed, you've seen some of them there already. But it's uh, it's pretty. I put cool. up a few on the Instagram. Talk and about in the show notes, obviously. That are you? You were referencing Ron that. Rattlesnake? You did that with your phone, right? Yeah. So this rattlesnake was super chill. He was just kind of going, and he was going in one direction and one direction only. And so I got way out ahead of him. And I don't know why I filmed it in slow motion because he wasn't moving that fast. It would have been just fine at regular speed and probably could speed it up. But he... You know, they have the the heat sensing pits in the in the front of their mouth. And uh, he went right to my I put my cell phone in front of him, like 10, 15 yards in front of him. And he went right to it and right up to it. And I now know what the minimal focusing distance is for an iPhone 12 um, because he went out of focus as he came up and uh, his tongue kind of he kind of tasted my screen with his tongue. <laughs> and, um, that was pretty awesome. And then he, he just kind of retreated and it was even fun to watch him retreat because he didn't just pull straight back, pull his head straight back and then start going again. He pulled it back and it, the sides of his, like the venom glands on the sides of his head hit two blades of grass. And instead of just coming back through it, you know, it's just two blades of grass. He turned his head sideways and pulled his head out so it wasn't hitting the grass anymore. It wasn't like cactus or anything. It was just, you know, bluegrass. So it it was really, really neat. And to get that on my cell phone was kind of cool. I thought that was a GoPro. No, it was. Yeah, because I have a case that has a little stand on it. So I just folded the stand up, set it down, left it there, and he went right to it. And I think it was probably because the little bit of heat that the phone was giving off, uh, he was sensing. And so that's why he ended up going right to the phone instead of, you know, ended up going around it and missing it by 10, 12 inches. Yeah. When are we going to get together again? We have to look at the sked and see when we're going to do our next catch up or pro tips or questions or what, what the scoop is. We yeah, didn't we even cover a, all the bases pro today. Tip, pro tip slash question episode for sure. Because I know we've been getting several questions from the the Instagram feed and a few on Facebook as well. Right. Keep them coming. Yeah, for sure. 
something that we've covered on social media, but I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast, is that we have a discount code with Precision Camera as well. So Precision Camera, our sponsor is in Austin, Texas. It's the largest camera store between New York City and L.A., and they are great people. They have a very interactive website, and the link is on our website. Very easy. Just go to the sponsors page at wildandexposed.com, and it's W-E, that's capital, W-E-50. And what that does is it gives you $50 automatically off of any purchase of $500 or more. So something to keep in mind if you're looking for whatever type of gear or camera equipment, that's an opportunity for you to have a little bit of discount through us, and it helps our connection with our fantastic sponsor as well. You can see more of our work on YouTube, and we talked about it a little earlier, but I really want to mention this to remind people to check out the cool playlist that we added just this past week of Michael and Ray's trip from Colorado to Alaska. Some great short videos. There's five of them ranging from a couple of minutes up to the final one being longer at 30-some minutes, which is a great chilling, chill chill out experience of, of a road trip set to music and the sun was it a sunrise or sunset or both i mean spectacular scenes and then the bison the bison up in the yukon northern british columbia feeding along the road but then there was you see a couple feeding and then there was something spectacular i mean the row of them it's like what's going on there and and then the sign forest i had no idea mr Canadian here, what that was like. I thought it was just a little section, but when you drove past it and it rotated and had that 3D effect, that's a crazy cool place. Yeah, that's in Watson Lake. In Watson Lake in the Yukon Territory. So check those out on YouTube, watch that playlist, and while you're there, subscribe. It's free. Hit that bell icon because we are going to put it be putting up more and more video content on YouTube for your viewing enjoyment. There are other playlists. You can go back in time and go to Alaska with us. All kinds of things on there as well as podcasts too. So check that out and you can see more of our work as always on Instagram, on Facebook, and on our website. And finally, I'll say this one more time for today is check out the store on our website. If you're looking for any cool, wild and exposed swag merchandise, we've got great T-shirts, hats, uh, hoodies, mugs. We've ordered all of it. We've tested it. We're wearing it. We love it. And it helps support our efforts here at the podcast as well. So once again, thank you for coming along for the ride and tuning in. Until next time. You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.